uh, continue in our series in the book of Acts. We've entitled Missio Dei, The Mission of God. And this morning, Lord willing, we'll be covering uh, verses 8 through 20 of chapter 19. 8 through 20 of, of chapter 19. Let me just go ahead and uh, let you know, no, I, it doesn't look like I'm going to finish the book of Acts. Um, all right, so I, I wish I would have. And I, as I mentioned last week, there's so much here. I don't want to skip over it. Maybe I'll do like four uh, chapters in one message one time. You guys would love that, wouldn't you? Then you'd be wondering, why didn't he do four chapters all the time, right? See, you get, you get spoiled like that. I'm kidding. There's just so much here. I don't want to skip over it. And I'm excited about uh, um, our time in the Word this morning. Just some things I discovered in studying this week that I had not seen before. Not only about this passage, but all of the book of Acts and how this tied in. So this morning, the title of the message is The Ministry of the Word. The Ministry of the Word. Now I'm going to read our entire passage for us uh, this morning uh, in, in one reading here. Beginning in verse 8, you can follow along with me in uh, your copy of God's Word, 19.8. And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took, took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Gentiles. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that the handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to, to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them, so they fled out of that house naked and wounded. You got to smile there. <laughs> um, this became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many also the, the, of those who believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone, and they counted up the price of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Now, for our prayer um, time this morning here, just to pray about the Word of God and ask Him to do what only He can do, I, I want to um, show you something I found this week. Um, it's actually a hymn that I've never heard, uh, and, and I'll have to ask Jared later if he, where is Jared at? Where is Jared? Uh, oh, back, back, kids music, all right, double, double duty today, okay. But this is a song I think. Okay. Well, there we go. No. All right, that's all right. Hey, just listen. Here we go. All right, but this is a song actually written by John Newton. Okay, and uh, you could even sing it to the to the tune of Amazing Grace. And uh, I'm not going to do that for you, but let me just read you the words of this song. You're laughing at Josh. Well, I may sing it now. Thy promise, Lord, and thy command have brought us here today. 
And now we humbly waiting stand to hear what thou wilt say. I'll read the rest of them. Meet us, <clears throat> meet us, we pray. There we go. With words of peace and fill our hearts with love that from our follies we may cease and henceforth faithful prove. Now, Lord, inspire the preacher's heart and teach his tongue to speak, food to the hungry soul in part, and comfort to the weak. Furnish us all with light and power to walk in wisdom's ways. So shall the benefit be ours, and thou shalt have the praise. Lord, this is our prayer. Use your word to change us, that you might be praised. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as most of you know, I enjoy this crazy little game called football. Where a bunch of uh, guys, 22 at the same time, 22 guys are chasing around this um, leather ball in skin-tight clothing. And it's kind of strange when you think about it like that, trying to hurt each other for this ball. But that's what football is, and I enjoy that game. And not only do I enjoy it, but the Lord has used it to teach me a lot as I participated in the game. Discipline, um, hard work. Uh, getting through difficulty, being a team player, being teachable or coachable. And the Lord has also used the game to a football to, as a source of provision for, for my family. Um, it provided for my college education. Um, it provided me, when I was in the NFL for a brief time, enough to buy John Allen an engagement ring, enough for us to um, put money down on our first home to help pay for our wedding as well. And now the Lord is easing using football to pay for my oldest son's education. So thank the Lord for football. All right? um, but obviously th there's many reasons uh, for, to enjoy the game of football and like the game of football, especially for me. But most of all, I just like watching, I just enjoy the game. It's a fun game. There's a lot of strategy involved. Most people think that it's the big dumb guys. They don't know what they're doing. Actually, you cannot be dumb and be successful at the game of football. You just can't. It's one of the most complicated games in, in, in the world as far as team sports go. There's 11 different positions and all 11 do something different. That's, I mean, just, that's hard. I mean, basketball's got five, all right? I mean, it's just, it's a very complicated game, but it's fun to watch. It's fun to watch the strategy, fun to watch the guys compete. Um, but but I, a lot of people will say, well, I like the NFL better. And other people say, well, I like college football better. Well, I'll just let you know I'm a college football guy. I love the game of college football for many reasons, the pageantry, the, the dedication, the, the team spirit, all those kind of things. But there's another reason I really like college football above the NFL, and it has to do with overtime. In the NFL, you can actually still tie. Now, they've changed the rules of overtime in the NFL, trying to make sure they don't tie, but they can still actually come out and have a tie. And if you've heard this before, tying is like kissing your sister, all right? Uh, you don't want to tie. You play to compete to win, all right? The college, they change those rules. Actually, when I was in college, they, didn't, they, they, they had a little bit different overtime rules, but now they have these rules, and you just keep playing until somebody scores and the other person doesn't score. And you just go over and over again. And it's actually the two longest games in the history of college football were played in 2001 and 2003, and w there was a common denominator in both those games. Arkansas, the University of Arkansas, Helen, was in, it was, Helen's from Arkansas, was in both those games. 2001, they defeated Ole Miss. It was like 58 to 56. And 2003, they beat my Kentucky Wildcats, <laughs> 71 to 63. And they just kept going seven overtimes until they got a winner. I love it. Why would you even play the game if you're not going to have a winner? 
That's not even life. No, no, everybody doesn't win. It's what they're trying to teach our kids today. Oh, everybody gets a ribbon. You get a participation ribbon. And when, I'm not trying to be mean, but when I was a kid, you got a participation meaning, women, a participation ribbon. It, it basically meant loser. All right, you didn't win. Now everybody gets a trophy. That's not real life. People win, people lose. There's difficulty. Sometimes you have success. Sometimes you don't. And we're teaching our children that everybody wins, and it's just not true. Why did God send Jesus? Does everybody win? Everybody doesn't win. He wins, but everybody doesn't win. And, and, and I think about that, and, and you've also probably heard this before, uh, this, this phrase, offense wins games and defense wins championships. Anybody heard that? Heard that? Now, I'm an old defensive guy, and I like that. But the reality is you can't win championships without offense. You have to score more than the other team to win. Zero to zero is not a win. And I know you can return, defense can return um, an a, a, a interception for a touchdown. But once they have the ball, guess what they're called now? Offense. And now all the rules that the offense has to abide by, the defense now that became offense has to abide by those rules. People don't realize that. So you have to have a good offense to win. You can't just have a good defense. Great, we held them to nothing, but they still won three to nothing. We got a great defense. We lost. You have to have an offense. You have to score points to win. And not only do you need a good offense to win in the football, but you must also have a good offense to fulfill the mission of God for the church. To be his witnesses with a message that rescues people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. From the penalty, the power, and ultimately the presence of sin, you have to have an offense. It can't be all defense. And this charge, this charge to go out, uh, is found in the beginning of the book of Acts, in Acts 1.8. But you will receive power, and the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the world. Jesus called them to go out, to be his witnesses. This was their call. We've been talking about this through these 37 messages already in the book of Acts. That's the mission of the church, to go. You can't just sit back and defend. You must go. And as we worked our way through Acts, we have seen that there is opposition to the mission of God for the church. Tim just read about opposition. Paul before the council, he's going to be going before Felix. And people are mad because of what Paul is teaching, what Paul is preaching. He's preaching the good news. He is fulfilling what God called him to do, to be his witnesses. And they're upset. And the Lord gives us, his people, a good defense, all right, to protect us from the enemy. Uh, namely, Satan um, is our greatest enemy who uses people to be opposition to us. And then we have great defense, and ultimately the defense is Christ himself. I love in First Peter, it says we are protected by the power of God. Beat that power. You can't. That's a heck of a defense. But there's got to be a great offense. He didn't just give us a defense. He gave us an offense in order we might fulfill the mission of the church. And that offense is his word. His word is our offense. That's what we take to the world. In fact, we only have one offensive weapon. But don't worry, it's the only one we need. We only need one play. Isn't that great? I mean, can you imagine being an offensive coordinator for a football team? You got, I got one play. Now, when I coached Little League, we basically really only had about one play. <laughs> we just ran the right kids in the right places. But you only one play to win. And the Lord, through Paul, reminds his people of this in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17. And, 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 and not ironically, but in the province of God, guess where Paul is in our passage today? Ephesus. 
Now, you can turn there if you want to. I would normally have it up here for you. If you would turn there in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 17, it's probably a familiar passage. If you don't want to turn there, you can listen. Here is Paul near the end of... Um, uh, that's not it, but that's okay. Okay, well, we're... we're all right, there we go. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. There it is. There is our offensive weapon. If you notice, that's the only offensive weapon in the whole armor of God, is the sword of the Spirit. It's the Word of God. When you study the book of Acts about the mission of God, you soon realize that the fulfillment of his mission is brought about by the indwelling Holy Spirit through the ministry of the Word. It's all over the place in the book of Acts. And this was one, something fun I learned this week. I at least noticed. And I began to go back over the book of Acts and began to look at the word, just this phrase, the Word of God or the Word of the Lord, the Word. And actually, I'm going to share a bunch of those with you. And you're going, wow, that's a lot. Guess what? It's only about half of the ones I could share you from the book of Acts. So here we go. In Acts 2.41, just listen with me. So then, those who had received his word, this is on the day of Pentecost, those who had repented and trusted Jesus, says, those who received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. So at the very beginning, it was the word of God that went out from the mouth of Peter by the power of the Holy Spirit that brought about new birth and life of these people, and they responded by being baptized to the word of God. Verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 31, they're being persecuted. They're uh, it, it been thrown in jail. And listen, it says, When they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Chapter 6, when they're having uh, a little problem. If you all remember chapter 6, that, they, that the, uh, some of the, the, the widows were not being fed. They weren't getting their food. So there was a little complaint that rose up. And it was, a, it was an issue that needed to be dealt with. And uh, some of the Hellenists or the Greek-speaking uh, Jews were not, their widows weren't being taken care of. So they raised up a complaint. And the, uh, what, what did the apostles do? They said, okay, go appoint seven men of good reputation full of the Holy Spirit that can take care of this. But listen to what they said in Acts 6-4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Chapter 8. Therefore, those who have been scattered went about preaching the word. This is after the big scattering of the church. Great persecution brought out, came up against the church. And guess what happened? They were scattered. And what they do? They went about preaching the word. Acts 11.1. 1. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. They received the, the word of God. Chapter 12, verse 24. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. Chapter 13, verse 5. When they reached Samalus, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had John as their helper. 
1349. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. 1535. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others the word of the Lord. Acts 1632. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. Acts 18.11, and he settled there a year six months, speaking of Paul, teaching the word among them. That's about half of what leads up to our passage this morning, about the word of the Lord, the word of God. It was the word of God that enabled the fulfillment of the mission of the church at the beginning of the church. It is the word of God that brought about growth of the church in Acts, as well as as we're going to be reminded here of this passage today. And it's the word of God that will enable the continued fulfillment of the mission of God until the Lord returns and his mission is completely fulfilled. There is no plan B. There's no plan B. There's not an alternative weapon. You don't get to change the word of God in for something else. There's only the word of God. But that's all we need. We need nothing else. Peter reminds us of this in 1 Peter 1.23. For you have been born not of seed which is perishable but imperishable. That is through, or been born again, not of seed which is imperishable, perishable, imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. We are born again. We are given new life. We are made right with God through the word of God. There's no other means by which we're going to be made right. Obviously, the Holy Spirit's using the Word of God, but it's the Word of God. It's the enduring Word of God. So let's now turn our attention here to Acts 19, 8 through 20, where we'll once again see that it's the Word of God that accomplishes the mission of God. If you want a theme for the day, that's it. The Word of God accomplishes the mission of God. And after we walk down through these passages, again, I'm going to encourage us, as I point things out along the way, there'll be things that probably rise up in this passage that, that stick out to you more than they stick out to me. And I understand that. That's, that's what, what, what the, the Lord does with his word. He brings to light the things that we m- most need in the word of God. So I'm going to walk through this, explain some things, point out some things, then come back and then point out some general things that all of us can put in practice in our life. Now, remember that as we pick up here in verse 8, Paul is in Ephesus. All right. Now, if I had a map up here, I would show you where he is. Um, but he, he's in Ephesus, which is in what's, what we call Asia Minor today. It's in the south part of Asia Minor. And look with me at verse 8 there again in, in verse 19, um, chapter 19. He entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. In keeping with the regular game plan, Paul went where? He went to the synagogue first when he entered. If it was a synagogue, that's where he went first. Because Jesus had commanded the, the, the apostles to do this. First go to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. So Paul kept with that command of Jesus Christ to go to the Jews. So he goes to the synagogues where they would be gathering. gathering. And, and notice it says that he continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. As far as we know, this three months was the longest tenure that Paul ever had in a synagogue. Now, every Sabbath for three months, he showed up and was teaching. Now, usually it only took one time or maybe two, and he was run out of town. He was not welcome in the synagogue anymore. But here, three months, every Sabbath, every Saturday, he showed up. And it says he was reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. It indicates he was teaching and then giving time for questions and comments. So he would teach 
And this was the form. And then, then they would tap time. Okay, I've got a question about that, Paul. And he would explain what was going on. And they'd have some comments. And then he would talk to them. And they'd go back teaching. So it was going on. And he did so in order, it says, to persuade them. He was persuading them about the truth of the kingdom of God. Now, this is a phrase used throughout the book of Acts as a summary statement for the whole message of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God has an aspect called already, not yet. Anybody ever heard that before? There's things, it's already, but not yet. And there's, there's, there's other things in Scripture like that. The kingdom of God, when Jesus showed up, all right, and in Matthew 4, 17, he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here right now. Of course, we know it's here right now because Jesus was on earth. The king was on the earth. All right? And then, so it's, 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 it's already. There was an aspect of the kingdom that is already. And there's also an aspect that's not yet. It's, it's to come. Listen to what he said to, to Nicodemus. He said, unless one be born again, they cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus wasn't in the kingdom of God, although the kingdom of God was here. And then in Acts, we saw earlier, that he, says, he said to them, through many trials, you, will, you must enter the kingdom of God. And he's talking about believers at the time. They weren't in the, the full kingdom of God when Christ will reign. So there is an already and not yet. But the, the phrase, the kingdom of God, is just this summary phrase of all the ministry and the message of Jesus Christ. So don't get hung up when you see that the, the kingdom of God. That's what he was teaching. He was teaching about Jesus, just like he always did. The kingdom of God begins and finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And Paul was seeking to persuade those in the synagogue of this truth. So that's what he's doing. And notice that he spoke out. What's your Bible say there? He spoke out boldly. With great force. With great conviction. He, he was bold because he believed what he had to say was of eternal significance. And we know he believed this because he wrote in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for the Greek. Why would he speak out boldly? Because he believed it. He understood it was his eternal significance. It was the difference between heaven and hell. That's why he spoke out boldly. And notice what he, he didn't do. He didn't just say, well, you know, that's a good idea. I've got an idea too. He didn't present the gospel as one of many ideas. He presented it as the truth and the only truth. And nothing but the truth, so help him God. That's what Paul did. He boldly spoke about the gospel because he understood it was the only thing that would make people right with God and save them from the wrath of God, which was justly due them because of their sin. So here's a question. Do you? Do you speak boldly about the things of God. Not just as another idea. Well, you know, I've got an idea. What do you think about my idea? Well, that's a pretty good idea. Well, that's nice. No. Do we speak boldly of the things of God? Well, I can promise you when you do that, you're probably not going to make a lot of friends. You may get run out of someplace. But if we really believe it, why would we just say it's another idea? Why would we say, well, oh, you know, that's pretty good. We'd never do that. If we really believe it, we would say, this is the truth. I want to tell you how you can be rescued from the penalty of your sin. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul was doing. He spoke boldly. After doing this every Sabbath for three, three months, he, he began to have some opposition. Enough opposition that caused a change. So look at verse 9. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, 
He withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. So many had come to, place, to a place where their hearts were hardened to the truth. It says that they, they, they were hardened and, and disobedient. They disobeyed the call to repent and trust in Jesus. And so much for they just got fed up. They got so much they got fed up with what was going on. They went, enough of this Jesus, enough of this grace through faith kind of stuff. We'd like to work our way to heaven. So we're tired of it, Paul. What you're saying is, is, is awful. And the Lord Jesus Christ, he's evil. Ooh. They were blaspheming against the Lord Jesus Christ. And this began to hinder Paul's effectiveness with those who were listening, to those who wanted to grow, those who wanted to know Jesus. So he moved on. And after a while, some people can come, become, the Bible teaches some people can become so hardened, so resentful of the gospel that it's time to move on. Jesus said, don't cast your, your, your pearls before swine. People who really don't want to change. People who, who really don't care. They're just there to make a problem. And that's what happened here. He decided it's time to move on. And, and all of us have to make a decision at some point in our life. Not we don't keep praying for them. But they begin to blaspheme the name of Jesus. It's time to move on to someone else. And, and trust that God's working in that person's heart. And listen to them as they, oh wow, they're responding. This is what I do on an airplane. Like I've told you this before. So I'll sit down on the airplane. And I, I like the aisle seat because I'm a little taller. But plus I got them you know, cornered. Right? And uh, so I get on there and I begin conversation and I just, you know, ask many questions to get to spiritual things. It doesn't take very long. And, and I can tell pretty quickly whether or not they want to talk about the things of the Lord. Or at least they're interested. And if not, I don't just keep on, well, you know, look over here in Romans chapter 3, 20, 30, 23, it says you're a sinner. And I just keep on and on and on and on. No, I did, when they don't want to talk, I don't, I just, all right, we're done. It's okay. I, I trust God with that. Right, but when they want to talk, hey, I'm all ready. I'm ready to present them the, 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 the truth that brings life to them. And we need to do the same. And sometimes you just got to move on. But so, so Paul, it says he withdrew and he took away the disciples. He took away the believers, those who were, were following Jesus and, may, and most likely some other people, as we'll see. And he was reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. It seems Paul rented this building from this guy named Tyrannus. Now, that's Latin for the word tyrant. And it's thought that this was a nickname given this teacher by his students. Anybody have a nickname for your teachers growing up? Let's be honest. All right. Some of them probably weren't. Real, oh, I'm the only one. Okay. All right. Some of them probably weren't very nice. All right. With tyrant, that's probably a pretty good one. Maybe this guy's teaching style. Um, but uh, that, that's the thought. It was how he got his name. Or at least the school of Tyrannus. All right. Um, but from other sources, it's believed that Paul taught between 11 a.m. and 4 p.m. Now, why did he teach there in that time? Well, the way their day was set up, you would get up really early and you would work till 11. Then it's siesta time. You would eat and you would rest. Why? From 11 to 4 was the heat of the day. It was hot. And in this part of the country, it was hot. So why work then? You're not going to be effective at all. And then y'all like, tell my boss that. <laughs> from 11 to 4, can we have siesta out at you know, the plant? Um, but that's what they did. And then they would come back after 4 and then they would work more. And then they would eat their dinner later. Okay, and there's actually some other countries in the world that still, that's kind of the schedule. It's not here in the United States, but that was what was going on. So 11 to 4, the hall was open, this building was open, and he could, he could rent. Now think about this. Paul, when he was in Ephesus, and he, he writes later to them and tells them that he worked, okay? Uh, he writes to the church at Corinth and tells them when he was in Ephesus that he worked. He actually writes to the church in Corinth also um, when he's at Ephesus, which is pretty, pretty interesting here. He's writing to the church of Corinth when he's at Ephesus. Well, here's what he did. He got up early. 
and he worked. What was he? Says he's a tent maker. He was a leather worker. And he with Aquila and Priscilla, they worked and, and he worked with his hands until 11. And then he would go show up at the school of Tyrannus, which he had rented and teach for five hours. And then he would go back to work. Just like everybody else. But he used that time, this five-hour time, and most likely he was, making, he was earning this money so that he could rent the hull. Think about how sold out Paul was to the gospel. He spent what he made for eternal purposes. You think, well, it's a little bit different today. It is a little bit different today. You know what, though? We can spend what we make for eternal purposes. We can buy food for eternal purposes, can't we? As we invite people over to our house to talk about the things of God. Or take them out to eat. We can spend that money that God allows us to earn. And remember, it's the God who gives us the ability to make money. So Paul just used what he had. He ran to school and for five hours. He taught. Amen. For five hours. Amen. Okay, some of y'all get that in a second. All right, five hours he taught. This is like when I'm in Russia. I teach for more than that, which is amazing. Um, and they sit there because they're, they're, they're ready to learn. But, um, but here's what's going on. He's teaching. And uh, he, he's per, per pursuing the fulfillment of the mission of God. And the beginning of verse 10 says he taught in the school of Tyrannus for how many years? Two years. Two years he, he ran this building. He taught five hours, um, at basically Sunday through Friday. And then in Acts 20, 31, which we'll see here in a few weeks, says that Paul spent a total time of Ephesus of three years. Three years he spent there ministering to the people. He invested his life in these people God had called him to. Now look at the rest of the investment, in, in, uh, the result of the, this investment in verse 10. Look at that, that, that phrase, so that. So that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Let me read that again. So that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Wow, what a statement. So that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Paul faithfully taught in Ephesus to all who would listen. And the Lord transformed their life. And guess what happened? They took what they heard. It says they heard the word of the Lord. They took and they, they took it all over Asia Minor. So he's talking about here, Asia. And, and most likely, Colossae, Laodicea, uh, Hierapolis, quite possibly the other churches mentioned in, in Revelation 2 and 3, like Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia. All these churches came out mostly from Paul's teaching in Ephesus and then challenging and commissioning the people he was teaching to go out, most likely maybe back to their hometowns, and take the gospel. You say that was pretty good investment? A good return on an investment? You bet it was. Amazing that that's what happened. And what did they teach? Verse 10 says that they taught the word of the Lord. He invested the word of the Lord into people who took it to others. The impact on and the change in the people didn't come from cleverness. It didn't come even from Paul's faithfulness. It didn't come from the sharing of ideas, but through the faithful ministry of the word of God. That's why there was change. That's why there was change all over Asia Minor. It's been said there are only two things in this world that last forever. Think about this with me. There's only two things in this world that last forever. The Word of God and people. So spend your time investing the Word of God into people. Because there are only two things in this world that will last forever. The Word of God and people. How are we doing? 
Are we investing the word of God into people? Because ultimately, everything else just burns. It's all, all worthless. There's many ways we can do that. It doesn't have to be preaching the word of God from a pulpit. We can do it every single day with our life and our lips. Is ministering the word of God to people. This is the way and the only way to fulfill the mission of God. Now, before we look at verses 11 through 20, let, let me give us a little background of Ephesus. I wish I had more time to give a whole lot because it's amazing about this city, Ephesus. One commentator writes, uh, the atmosphere of the city was elect electric with sorcery and incantations, with exorcists, with all kinds of magic imposters. I mean, it was like a sideshow at the circus was going on Ephesus, and it was like a sideshow on steroids. Because there was most likely about 400,000 people in Ephesus at this time. History also teaches the phrase Ephesian writings, or Ephesia grammata, uh, was commonly in, common in antiquity for documents containing spells and magic formula. Right? So there, there would be these little, little, little things, these little pieces of paper, and they would have spells on them. And so when people would, would use the word Ephesia Grammata, everybody understood what they were talking about. This came from Ephesus. It's a spell. It's some kind of special incantation to bring power or to, to do something with. Ephesus, was all, Ephesus also contained one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. The, te the temple of Artemis, or Diana, which was a fertility god who had hundreds of breasts to signify fertility. And there's a lot of stuff that went on there that was awful in the city of Ephesus. So superstition ran high. Paganism ran high. Magic ran high. It was a hotbed for those things. Therefore, it's also a hotbed for deception and for people looking for a new experience or power. With this in mind, now look with me beginning in verse 11. So that's what, that's what Ephesus, this is what Paul walks into. This is where he is. This is setting for three years. God was performing, extra, verse 11, extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons, let me just say handkerchiefs there is like a sweatband. It's talking about what he wore on his head as he worked. Aprons is talking about a leatherman's apron, not a, a kitchen apron. All right, This is his work clothes, basically. Were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. It's as if God condescended to the superstition of the people of Ephesus to reach them, showing that he was the one who had the most power. It's like God came, and we've seen this other places in, in Scripture, he came and he kind of played their game. All right, you want, if this is what you believe, all these crazy little things you believe, look what I can do. It's way better than what you got, because I'm God. And he does this through the man who's preaching who? The, Jesus Christ. He's preaching the word of God. Um, one commentator says this, We're not to suppose that the apostles were always able to work miracles at will. An influx of supernatural power was given to them at the time and according to the circumstances that required it. And the character of the miracles was not always the same. They were, they, they were accommodated to the particular forms of sin, superstition, and ignorance they were required to oppose. I've said this way before many, many times as we talked through many books of the Bible, that it's never about the miracles. It's never about the miracles. It's about the Word of God. It's about God doing His mission through His people. The miracle is not the issue. Somebody could be, could have their legs grow back and still go to hell. Because they need a new heart is what they need. 
There's always a purpose behind the miracles. And the same here. It's just like, oh, cool. And, and, and it doesn't say anything about Paul is the one that, that is, is, is um, moving this forward. Hey, take my handkerchief to them. It sounds like they're just kind of taking them. Oh, that was on Paul. Let's grab that and let's take it over here. Maybe it'll heal somebody. Because they were so superstitious. That's what was going on. And God condescended to reach them in this way. He, he was doing through Paul. And also it seems what he was doing through Paul was greater than any of the con men of Ephesus. They began to look and say, man, this Paul's got some new tricks. We'll see what they get, on, get in on that. So let's see what happens when they decide to get in on that. Verse 13. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name, to name over those who had this evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches, who Paul preaches. And so then he gives an example. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this, and the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them, so they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this is one of the most comical passages in all the scripture. So these guys show up. Well, in the name of Jesus, come out of there. And they're like, well, who are you, man? I mean, no, no, no. On the name of Jesus that Paul preaches. So they don't know Jesus. They know that Paul knows Jesus. But they know somehow the name of Jesus was powerful. So they kind of use it as an incantation. It's like we probably wrote it down a little, a little uh, Ephesia Grammata right there. Now they've got one. They started passing them around. Well, just call out the name of Jesus against these guys that Paul preaches. And the evil spirit's like, man, who are you? And what's ironic about this is the evil spirits were using these people for their purposes before. But when they decide to stand up against these evil spirits, the evil spirits said, okay, we're done playing a game. All right, I will show you who's boss. And they cause this guy to leap on them. And some, I don't know what happened to their clothes. I, don't know, I have no idea. But they run out of the house naked. It's just, it's just amazing what happened. And, and, and humiliated humiliated is what happened because they try to use Jesus's name for personal gain and power and when they did it backfired on them in a sense they were using the Lord's name in vain not use the Lord's name in vain so what happened after this what was the result of this look at verse 17 this became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. That's an understatement, and fear fell upon them all. I mean, these guys got beat up, and they got sent out naked. And people were scared. I mean, they were fearful. And the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. They learned that Jesus was not some false god that you could use to serve your purposes, but instead he was the one true God who alone deserved to be served and deserved to be feared. Notice too that it was not Paul who was magnified. What does it say? But the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. This should always be our aim as we seek to fulfill the mission of God. Is that the name of the Lord Jesus be magnified? Not us. Not something that we do or something we have. But the name of the Lord Jesus would be magnified. I've told you this before. It's been years since I've told you this probably, but Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous um, preacher in London, years ago, used to say this, my goal in preaching is not that people would walk out and say, what a great preacher, but they would say this, what a great God. And that should be all of our goal when it comes to the mission of the church is that people magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 18 where we begin to see the results of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. 
Now listen, it says, those who had believed. It seems these guys were, these, these people were believers. They had trusted the Lord Jesus Christ. They were probably the first time Paul came. Or maybe the time he was preaching at the school of Tyrannus. And they, they came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were following after the Lord Jesus Christ. And trusting him for the forgiveness of sins. But it says they came. And it says they began confessing and disclosing their practice. There was a repentance of believers. It seems that even these believers in Ephesus still had some superstition in their lives. Uh, so, so they repented and they left that stuff behind. And you ever come to Christ and everything was perfect and you just all your sin was gone? I mean, all your practice of sin? I've never met anybody like that. And these people were just like us. They knew the Lord. They were trusting in Him. And their life was beginning to transform. But it was in this process, right? This progressive sanctification. Being made more like Jesus. And they, all of a sudden they saw this. And they saw that, oh, these little superstitious things. We better get rid of those things. This offends God. So here's my question for us. Is there superstition that we need to repent of this morning? Is there some kind of superstition in our life? Horoscopes? A rabbit's foot? A lucky fill-in-the-blank? I've got my lucky whatever it might be. Praying at a certain time? Holding your Bible a certain way? You know, if we do those things, God will love us more. You know, if we miss our abide reading, God won't love us anymore. Do you know that? But sometimes we use good things even that God has given us and we make them superstitious. We make them into superstition. And if we don't do it at this time or do it exactly this way or we don't read our Bible every single day, and we should, we ought to want to do that. Or we don't remember this, rise this much scripture. We don't serve in this ministry. And all of a sudden we make it a way to appease God. That's wrong. That's wrong. We don't appease God. We are appeased by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we appease God. We trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we can make even those things that God has given us into superstition. And if we're doing that this morning, we need to repent of that. We need to set it aside and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, not only for our salvation, but for our sanctification. And ultimately for our glorification. If there's anything in your life like that, you need to set it aside. Lucky socks, get rid of them. There's no luck in socks, I can promise you that. Whatever it is, we, we've got some of those things out there. We need to be careful. We need to put those behind us. Just as the believers did here. Not only did believers repent and grow, but notice what else happened in verse 19. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them inside of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. 50,000 day wages they brought. That's how much stuff they brought to burn. Now, how many of you all remember back in the 70s, all the book burnings, you know, the, they get the Christian concerts, Dave, Dave Stanley, I must have been the same concert. Um, yeah, get rid of those records and those books and you throw them in the fire, you know, and it was already planned. These people just, they did it themselves. Nobody, it's like nobody told them to. They just knew that they now have come, it looks like they have repented. These non-believers had repented. They looked at their life and they were trusting in all these things. And Paul said, I want to tell you somebody you can trust in who can make you right with God and forgive your sin forever. And they heard and they responded. Oh, look what I'm trusting in. And they got rid of it. They burned it. 50,000 days worth of wages. They burned it all. And so we're going to trust in Jesus Christ alone. That's what happened. At the preaching of the word. Well, how did Luke summarize the Lord's ministry through Paul during his time in Ephesus. Look at verse 20 again. So the word of the Lord was growing, grow, growing mightily and prevailing. 
Notice again, it was the word of the Lord that brought results. Back up in verse 10. All Asia heard the word of the Lord. Verse 20. The word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. It was not Paul or cleverness or a program or a sharing of ideas, but the word of God was growing rapidly, mightily and rapidly. The miraculous events surrounding Paul and Ephesus were meant to confirm Paul's message of the word of God. God condescended to their superstition, said, all right, we'll play your game, but I'm going to show you who you need to listen to. I'll outdo all your magicians, so you listen to Paul, because he's going to preach my word. And my word will be bring about change, not the miracles. It doesn't say, does it say, and the miracles of the Lord were growing mightily and prevailing. He summarizes the ministry here at this part of Ephesus by this phrase. The word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Did the Lord through Paul ever, 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 ever change the way in which he fulfilled his mission? Did the Lord ever do that? Did he ever change it through the word? Is there a new one? Did he ever change that anywhere in scripture? No. He had a disciple, which he had a disciple which we know, Timothy. He picked him up in Acts 16, and Timothy was his traveling partner. And later on in Paul's ministry, he sends Timothy to where? Ephesus, to go and pastor with other pastors, other elders there at Ephesus. And he writes in his last letter that we have, right before he died, he writes to Timothy in Ephesus these words: Second Timothy four two. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. At the end of his life, on his deathbed, writing to Timothy at Ephesus, he says, preach the word. Preach the word. Preach the word. It never changed. God's plan to bring about change and the fulfillment of the mission of the church to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation has always been and will always be the word of the Lord. The ministry of the word. It's essential. Last week we talked about the essential nature of the Holy Spirit. This week we're really talking about the essential nature of the word of God, the ministry of the word. It's the word of God that accomplishes the mission of God. Therefore, let me give you a few things. Maybe you can jot these down. There's many ways to, to put them to practice. Therefore, know the word of God. Know the word of the Lord. You've got to know it if you're going to use it in ministry. And how do we do that? Well, there's lots of ways we can do that. We can read the word, and we do that through our one thing. We can do. You may have another Bible reading program or whatever, but we're doing that through abide. Most of us are, but you got to read the word. You study the word, so you dig in a little bit deeper. You begin to ask questions about the text, and, and, and begin to find the answers about the text. What does it mean? What does the word of God mean here? And then you memorize the word. You meditate. You just you, you, then you take one aspect of application. You begin to mull it over in your mind to meditate on it. And the word meditate actually means to speak aloud. So you begin to talk about, Lord, how can I apply this in my life? And this area I'm seeing, and I, I want to just begin to meditate. What does it look like for you to put it to practice? You can listen to the word of God. You're doing that now. You can do that in your car. We can do it. It's unbelievable how we can listen to the word of God now in our day and age. It's unreal. We can do those things in order to know the Word of God so that the Word of God might be used in our life to accomplish the mission of God. Secondly, proclaim the Word of God. You can't, don't just know it. Paul didn't just know it. The rest of the people in Acts that took the mission of God to the church and began to spread, they didn't just know it, but they proclaimed it. They spoke it. 
The gospel message is a verbal message. It's to be spoken to tell people about who Jesus is. To tell about the kingdom of God as Paul, as Paul was doing here. Thirdly, not only know the word of God, proclaim the word of God, but invest the word of God into others. First of all, invest it into your family. Make an investment into your family. The Word of God. Encourage them, if you all have older children, to read the Word. Read the Word together. Memorize the Word. Talk about the Word all day and how it applies to their life. Invest that into your family and then invest it in others. Because remember, there's only two things in this world that will last forever. And that's the Word of God and people. And we should be spending our time investing His Word in the lives of people. Because they don't have eternal rewards. Well, maybe you're here this morning... And you're, you're thinking, man, I, I, I'm kind of like these guys here at uh, Ephesus, the second group, where I'm trusting in everything but the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm trusting in my good works. I'm trusting in, 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 in this little superstition thing I have over here. I'm trusting in this over here. And, and, and Paul would say, and more importantly, Jesus would say, you need to repent. You need to turn from trusting in those things that can never make you right with God. And you need to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I had a great discussion with a young man who was here last week and he was asking about how Old Testament believers were made right with God. And, and I said, well, what do you think? He said, well, the sacrifices of the animals. And I said, well, it's a good guess, but it says in Hebrews that the blood of goats and bulls can never, cannot forgive sin. So sin couldn't be forgiven. That was ultimately meant to point to the Lamb of God who was to come, Jesus, who takes away the sin of the world. So they were saved on credit. They looked forward to what was to come. And I appreciated his honesty. But I, I want to know about this. And, and, and we look back, right, to what was to come. But all people, all people in the history of the world trust in only one, one person. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ to be made right with God. It's all, it's all at the cross in 30 AD. And if you've never done that, I want to encourage you to turn from whatever tr you're trusting in outside of Jesus and trust in him alone for the forgiveness of your sins and make you right with God. And for the rest of us, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, may we be about ministering the Word of God to see the mission of God be fulfilled. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your Word. Thank you for um, the fact that it is sharper than any double-edged sword, able to divide the soul and spirit. And Lord, we pray you would use your Word to bring about change in our own lives. Lord, I pray we'd be like these people, these believers and acts that looked at the superstition in their life, other things that they were, were still trusting in a little bit. Um, and Lord, may we repent. May we, we cast those things away from us. Lord, if there's those here today who have never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin, Lord, I pray that you bring about con conviction in their lives to show them that they need to trust in Christ alone and pray that they would do that. Lord, help us now as we lift our voices in praise to you, the God of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you stand as we continue to worship this morning?